0: In Alhamdalilla, Nahmedu, yeah. who and Estarino, who and Estaufero, when I over in Shururi and Fusina, women say, Amalina, many hilahu Fala Mudilla, women knew the little fella had the ala, wash had la ilaha illa who wached the hula sharikala, wash had one Mohammedan Abedu who were a solo. Am bad? So continuing with Kun Salafi Al Jadda of Shaykh Abd al-Salam, al-Saheim, hafidhahullah ta'ala. We were discussing some of the principles of Salafiyya. Ba'ad al-Qawa'id fi salafi Some of the principles from the Salafi methodology. And we explained already the first of those principles, and this is in brief, of course, some of these principles. The first of them was the principle regarding enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. As Allah Subh'anaHu wa ta'ala stated in the Qur'an That there should be from amongst you a group who enjoin the good and forbid the evil and they are the successful. They are the characteristics of success to enjoin the good and forbid the evil. So we mentioned that principle. After that, we also mentioned the second principle, which was regarding worship. That worship, it is foundationally built upon a tawqif. Meaning, you cannot worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except by way of the evidence. When you have evidence from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, showing you and telling you, this is how you worship Allah, this is how you do this obedience, this is how you do that obedience then that is how you can worship Allah. But without the evidence, then it's not correct for any individual to invent his own form of worship. Rather, it must be based upon the evidences. And like we said, that is in opposition to the worldly affairs. The worldly affairs, that it's permissible and halal, mubah, to do as you please, unless you have an evidence telling you you cannot do it. Whereas with worship, you can only do it if you have an evidence telling you you can do it. So worship can only be done upon the evidences as they've been established. And that is the righteous actions. The righteous actions are those that are done upon sincerity and in accordance to the sunnah of the Prophet The third principle that we also mentioned was قاعدة فِي أَنَّ مِدَارَ الدِّينَ عَلَى الْعِلْمِ النَّافِعِ وَالْعَمِلِ الصَّالِحِ The principle regarding the fact that the religion the religion it revolves around beneficial knowledge and righteous actions that this religion is built upon or it revolves around those two things knowledge and actions knowledge and actions whereas if an individual he attempts to worship Allah without knowledge Then he will be from those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called the misguided ones. When you recite in Surah Al-Fatiha, اِهْدِنَا الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ ladina الَّذِينَ Amta عَلَيْهِمْ غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا الدَّالِينَ الدَّالِينَ are the ones who used to act without knowledge. They used to try to worship Allah without knowledge. And at the head of them, the Christians. And also, غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ Those who have knowledge, but do not act upon their knowledge. They have knowledge, but they don't act upon that knowledge in the correct manner, or they conceal it, and at the head of those is the Jews. So those are the characteristics that are not befitting, to have knowledge and not act upon it, or to attempt to act and to obey and to be obedient without having knowledge of what you're doing. So here the, the religion revolves around and this is what Salafiyya is based upon also, Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, that is what the religion is in truth, that it revolves around having that beneficial knowledge and the righteous actions to go with it. That's where we left off, and the next principle after that then, the fourth principle the Sheikh mentions, from the principles of the methodology of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, قَاعِدَ In dar al المفاسد مُقَدَّمٌ عَلَى جَلْبِ الْمَصَالِحِ that removing the harms is given priority over obtaining the good. If you have an option, you have an option, you can do one of two things. Either you can do something which will bring about some benefit and goodness, or you can do something which will stop some harm. But you can only do one of the two. If you do the one which brings about the goodness, then that harm will carry on happening. Or if you stop the harm, then you will miss out on bringing that goodness. So which one do you do? Do you do the goodness and allow the harm to carry on? Or do you stop the harm, but as a consequence have to miss out on that goodness and not getting it? Then the principle is that stopping the harm is given priority. Stopping the harm is given priority. What's the transition to give for there? Preventing the harm. Over achieving the hmm. Preventing the harm uh, is given precedence over achieving the benefits Preventing the harm is given precedence That's given priority That's given the priority The evidence for this principle Is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in surah al-an'am Ayah number 108 وَلَا تَسُبُّ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَيَا سُبُّ اللَّهِ عَدْوًا بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ Do not curse those whom they call upon besides Allah, lest they should curse Allah عَدْوًا بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ from their enmity without knowledge. What did I say there? insult Allah in enmity. exactly. So, do not curse the ones who they call upon besides Allah, lest they should curse Allah upon enmity without knowledge. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that it is impermissible, it is haram for us to curse the gods of the mushrikeen. Despite the fact, Sab لِآلِهَتِهِمْ لِكَوْنِهِ إِلَى صَبِّهِمِ تَعَالَى Despite the fact that if a person was to do that, he's doing it out of what? For the defense of the religion. For the defense of this religion and standing up for the rights of this religion of tawheed, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the sole one to be worshipped. You're standing up for all, all of those rights if you abuse those other gods and deities that they are worshipping. But despite that, Despite that, despite the shirk that they are committing with those other deities, then Allah has told us not to do that. Because if you do that, then they will respond by abusing and cursing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you were to criticize and insult their gods, their deities that they worship, then in response, in revenge, they would abuse and curse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to prevent that harm occurring whereby you are not going to cause them to abuse and uh, and, uh, criticize and uh, uh, spread evil speech regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and curse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to stop that is given precedence over clarifying the state of their idols in terms of that speech against their idols. وَكَانَ مَصْلَحَةُ تَرْكِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ أَرْجَحْ مِنْ مَصْلَحَةِ لِآلِهَتِهِمْ So preventing the harm, which is that they will then curse Allah, is given priority over the goodness of criticizing their idols and, abu- and uh, cursing their idols, or making it clear to the people the falsehood of their idols in that way. Obviously we make clear the falsehood of shirk, there's no doubt about that. But specifically of their idols in that way, if you were to do that, then the revenge they would seek is by cursing Allah, so therefore you don't do that. You don't do that and you stop the harm that could come. Also, another example of that, another example which may be uh, even clearer to understand for some. حَدِيثُ عَهْدٍ بِجَاهِلِيَّ لَأَمَرْتُ بِالْبَيْتِ فَهُدِمْ فَأَدْخَلْتُ فيه ما أُخْرِجَ مِنْهِ وَأَلْزَقْتُهُ بِالْأَرْضِ الحديث The hadith which is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha from Al-Bukhari and Muslim. The Prophet said to Aisha anha Was it not for the fact that the people are new to Islam? They have only just left Jahiliya. They have only just left Jahiliya. they are new to Islam. Was it not for that fact? Then I would have ordered for the Ka'aba to be taken down. I would have ordered for the Kaaba to be taken down, to be taken down and rebuilt upon its original foundations, because you know there's a section that is not built. That semicircle that you see now in the pictures, that's where the Kaaba should be up to. That's really where the Kaaba should be up to. That's why when somebody does Tawaf, you can't do it inside of that semicircle. You have to go around the semicircle you see in the pictures. The Kaaba should be up to that semicircle really. That's the original foundations. So the Prophet said, "Was it not for the fact that the people are brand new? They're new to Islam. They only just left Jahiliyyah." then i would have commanded for the kaaba to be taken down <coughs> to be taken down to taken apart be taken apart and built again on the original foundations so here the shaykh says fa fi الْحَدِيثِ al hadith عَلَى zahira ala الْقَاعِدَةِ in this hadith there is a clear indication of what this principle means if tarka nabi Sallam alaihi bina' al bayt al atiq ala usus ibrahim alaihi salam li dar' mafsada إن هو هدمه وبناه إن هو هدمه وبناه عليها وهي نفور الناس عن الإسلام أو ردتهم بسبب هذا So building the Kaaba upon its original foundations is something which is good. That's bringing about some goodness. Build the Kaaba upon its original foundations. That's something good. But the harm that would have come to try to do that would have been that the people, they would have, some of them might have even apostated. They would have said, what's going on here? The Kaaba, the house of Allah, and the walls are being knocked down. The people wouldn't have understood. They would have uh, been confused, and they would have run away from Islam, and even apostated. Thinking, what's going on here? The Muslims, they're destroying the Kaaba. So they would have run away from Islam, and they might have even apostated from Islam. So that's a harm, that's a great harm. So now you have these two options. Either do that goodness to build the Kaaba upon its original foundations. That's goodness. But the problem is if you do that, people are going to run away from Islam. They're going to say, what's this? Destroying the house of Allah. They're going to be running away. They're not going to understand. That's a harm. So which one do you do? In that case, you have to leave that goodness and stop that harm from happening. So how do you stop that harm from happening? By having to leave that goodness by not taking the Kaaba down and building it upon its original foundations. That is good, but if you do it, that harm will come about of the people running away from Islam, because they won't understand. So as a consequence, you leave that goodness for the sake of preventing this harm from happening. So everybody understand that principle now? That is the principle in Islam, that if there's a good and there's a harm, you have to give priority to stopping the harm. Even if it means you have to forego, or you have to let this goodness go. Then to stop the harm is given priority. Also, there are other examples of this. اَنَّ نَبِيَّنَّ سَلَّمَ كَانَ يَكُفُ عَنْ قَتْلِ مُنَافِقِينَ مَعَ كَوْنِهِ مَصْلَحَةً لِأَلَّا يَكُونَ ظَرِيعَةً إلَى تَنْفِيرِ النَّاسِ وَقَوْلُهُمْ أَنَّ مَحْمُودَ يَقْتُلُ Some of the munafiqin, the hypocrites at the time of the Prophet sallallahu they were known to the Prophet They were known to the Prophet sallallahu who some of these hypocrites are, the munafiqeen are. So to kill them, m- remember these hypocrites, these munafiqeen, they were the ones who were pretending to be Muslim. Outwardly, they were pretending to be Muslim. Praying with the Muslims, doing the things that the Muslims they do, pretending to be Muslim. But in their hearts, they did not accept that. In their hearts, they were upon disbelief and kufar and shirk. But they were pretending to be upon Islam. Some of them, even to the extent that they would attempt to plot and plan against the Muslims whilst pretending to be with the Muslims. That story, maybe we mentioned it, about the Masjid that was built next to Masjid Quba, Masjid al-Dirar. Some of the Munafiqeen, they built another mosque next to Masjid Quba in Medina. Munafiqeen, but they built a Masjid, why? Because they wanted that masjid as a place where they could get together and they could sit in there, have meetings in there to make plans against the Muslims. But they built it as a masjid so nobody would get suspicious. The Muslims, the, who were actually Muslims, they would just say, Alhamdulillah, it's another masjid, that's good. Nobody would be suspicious. So they said, we'll build it as a masjid. But then we'll use it in there, we'll sit there, we'll plot and we'll plan and we'll uh, try to attack Islam. Even to the extent... They asked the Prophet ﷺ to come and pray in that masjid. Because if the people, the Muslims, saw that the Prophet ﷺ has gone and prayed in that mosque, that would be a stamp of approval. That would be a stamp of approval. This masjid is good. The Prophet ﷺ has prayed in it. So they asked the Prophet ﷺ, this is how they were trying to be clever. They said to the Prophet ﷺ, come and pray in our masjid. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he was out in the Battle of Tabuk at the time. And he said to them, when I return, I'll pray in it inshaAllah. But then on the way back, the revelation came down. La تقم فيه أبدا Do not pray that masjid ever. The revelation came down to the Prophet ﷺ, And it became known to him that these are munafiqeen. And they've built that masjid for the sake of attacking the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ sent some of the companions and they destroyed that mosque. They burnt it down and they destroyed it. And some of the scholars, they say afterwards, that place was used as a garbage tip, as a rubbish tip because the munafiqeen had built that place for the sake of attacking Islam. This is who the munafiqeen were. Despite the Prophet ﷺ knowing who some of these munafiqeen are, then it would have been goodness to kill them. To kill these munafiqeen. That would have been a goodness. That's a goodness. Stop their harm to the Muslims. Stop their plotting against Islam. But the harm which would have come from that is that some of the Muslims, some of the people, they would have looked at that and they wouldn't have known. Not everybody knew who the munafiqeen are. Munafiqeen were pretending to be Muslims. So to the people looking at that, they would think that the Prophet ﷺ is killing other Muslims. They would think he's killing Muslims. Because they didn't know who the munafiqeen are. Not everybody knew who the munafiqeen are. The munafiqeen were pretending to be Muslims. So if the Prophet ﷺ knowing who they are killed them, but the people looking, the onlookers, they would think he has killed those people and they were Muslims. They used to pray with us in the mosque. They used to go to Hajj with us. The Prophet ﷺ, he kills his own people. That would be a harm. That would be a harm for the people to wrongly think that the Prophet ﷺ kills the Muslims and he kills his own people. So that would be a harm. So what do you do there now? Kill those munafiqeen, but risk having people think that the Prophet is killing his own people and killing the Muslims, which is a great harm. Or, have to leave that then, uh, miss out on that goodness, leave those munafiqeen then, but at the uh, benefit of making sure that there's no harm which occurs. Then the people won't think that the Prophet he kills his own people or he kills the Muslims. So again, to stop that harm from happening, you have to let go of that good. So this is another example. Also, there's another example, and this is a good example for our time too. Especially that the Khawarij and those people who have that kind of methodology uh, are attempting to distribute and spread their ideology and their methodology to the people and the Ikhwan al-Muslimin and some of these so-called scholars, the so-called scholars who tell the people you can go out and demonstrate and go out and fight against the rulers, etc., this is another example. umara al Wa in Adaf Adaf, Another example is Imagine you have for example an evil ruler. If you have an evil ruler, The people, they might want to go out against them. Against these rulers who are oppressors. The people may want to go out against them and to fight them and to remove them. The people say that's a goodness. That's a goodness if we can get rid of this ruler. We can get rid of this uh, tyrant as they say and these oppressors. We need to go out against them and get rid of them. That's goodness they say. But the harm which comes from that, everybody already knows. Everybody's already seen it from the various countries that have tried that and the harm that comes out how many innocent people they die in those demonstrations and in those battles between the people and the rulers how many men, women, children, elderly innocent people nothing to do with anything how many hundreds, thousands how many shops are broken and looted how many buildings are burnt how many hospitals are destroyed the evil that occurs from these attempts to remove the rulers are far greater than if you were to just leave them carrying on doing what they're doing. Those rulers, they might be doing some oppression. They may be oppressing the people to some degree. But if you were to compare the oppression that they are doing, people say there's poverty, there's no jobs, there's this, there's that, the economics aren't good in the country, and that's the ruler's fault. Okay, these bad things may be happening. But to compare that to what will happen if you try to remove him, With all of those innocent men, women, children being killed, hospitals destroyed, shops looted, all types of chaos. No police force, people robbing, looting, all types of activities occurring, which is worse. There's no doubt that if the people, they try to do that, then often what occurs is that there's a greater evil that occurs. So now you have the same option. The goodness which the people say is to remove the ruler, but the evil is far more than that. So now what do you do? The principle in Islam says, stop the evil. Don't allow the robbing and the looting and the pillaging and the killing to occur in the first place. Stay patient upon that ruler, make dua for the ruler, make dua for the ruler. Some of the Salaf they used to say, if I had one dua that would definitely be answered. Imagine now, if every person was told you have one dua, make it, it will definitely be answered. Some of the Salaf, used to say, if I was given that, if I was told, I have one dua that will definitely be answered, what would I do? He said, I would make that dua for the ruler of the place. I wouldn't make it for myself. I can have lots of money, I can have this, I can have that. I would make that dua for the ruler. If I knew I had one dua, that would definitely be answered. Why? Because if that dua is going to be answered, and I make dua for the ruler to be a righteous man, then if Allah makes the ruler a righteous man, that will mean all of the people in his country under his control will be under the righteous rule. The ruler will be good to them, he will kind to them, generous to them, and the people will live in happiness in all of that area. So making dua for that one man, the ruler, would mean happiness for everybody in that area, everybody under his authority, everybody in that country. This is what the they used to be like. Um... Then the ذكر، ويقول الشيخ الإسلام بعدما ذكر جملة من الفروع المندرجة تحت قاعدة المفاسد أولا من جلب المصالح، وإنه إذا تعارضت المصالح والمفاسد قدم الأرجح منهما على المرجح. So after Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah he spoke about this affair of preventing the evil given precedence. It is given precedence to prevent the evil to bringing the goodness. Uh, and that if there is a, uh, a clash of these benefits and harms then the greater of them is given precedence then Shaykh Al Islam Ibn Taymiyyah he said anna min wal jur he said that from the foundations and the principles of ahl sunnah wal is to cling to the unification cling to the the jama'ah, cling to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the congregation. To stick with the body of the Muslims in that way. And not to go out fighting against the rulers. Even the oppressive rulers. Not to try to go out and fight against them and make war against them. Especially in the times of fitna. ذَلِكَ دَاخِلٌ فِي الْقَاعِدَةِ al إِذَا تَعَارَضِتْ الْمَصَالِحُ وَالْمَفَاسِدِ وَالْحَسَنَاتِ وَالْسَيِّئَاتِ أو تزاحمت فإنه يجب ترجيح الراجح منهما فيما إذا استحمت المصالح المفاسد وتعارضت المصالح المفاسد فإن الأمر أنه إن كان متضمنا لتحصيل مصلحة وتحي مفسدة فينظر فينظر في المعارض له فإن كان ما يفوت من المصالح ويحصل من المفاسد أكثر لم يكن مأمورا به بل يكون محرما إذا كانت مفسدته أكثر من مصلحته. he then says that this issue of the goods and the harms and which one you give precedence to and priority to the goodness and the evil then if there is conflict between them there is conflict there are many different types of goodness there are different types of harms which one do you give priority to what do you do تزاحمت, or there are many of them then it is obligatory to work out the, the one that has the priority from all of them. To work out the one which has the priority from all of those. The priority one from all of these different harms and goods. al mafasid wa al al mafasid. So if there are many different harms and goods, and they are contradicting or they are conflicting... So if a person he looks at the harm of something and he looks at the goodness of that situation if by doing the goodness there's going to be a greater harm then in that case you don't you prevent the harm. But if by preventing that harm, there's going to be a massive greater amount of goodness that is going to be lost, then maybe in that case, the goodness could be done, even if it means that a small amount of harm could occur. Because there's a great amount of goodness there. But otherwise, if there is goodness and there is harm, then generally the harm is prevented. Um, How do we judge what is a harm and how severe that harm is? What is something good? How, how good is that good? All of that is based upon the shari'a, the Qur'an and the sunnah, the shaykh says. وَاَعْتِبَارُ مَقَادِيرَ الْمَصَالِحُ وَالْمَفَاسِدِ هُوَ بِمِيزَانِ We weigh up all of that in the balance of the shari'a. وَعَلَى هَذَا إِذَا كَانَ الشَّخْصُ أو جَامِعَيْنِ بَيْنَ لَمْ Yajzi أَنْ يُؤْمَرُوا بمعروف ولا أَنْ ينهى عَنْ منكر بل So if there was a group of people who are enjoying the good and forbidding the evil, they do some good and they do some evil, they are engaging in good and they are engaging in evil, then it is not sufficient to just enjoin the good on them or to forbid the evil upon them, because they are doing some good and they are doing some evil. So which one do you do? They are doing some evil, so should, should you prevent that evil? And enjoying the good, or they are doing some good anyway, so does that mean that you then prevent the evil? What do you do if they are doing good and they are doing harms? Here the Shaykh explains, what do you do if they are doing good and they are doing bad? Then in that case, you can't just do one of the other, you have to look at the situation. Uh, هو هو so if the goodness is greater, then you enjoin that goodness, enjoin that goodness even if there is a smaller amount of harm. And you do not prevent some evil if there's going to be a greater amount of goodness that's going to be lost. If there's going to be some greater amount of goodness that will be lost as a consequence of preventing this evil, then no. And if the evil that they are doing is greater, then you prevent that evil, stop it, even if it means that some small amount of goodness will be lost. So, this is how Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah weigh up the things. It's not as simple as we're going to prevent the good, uh, enjoy the good and forbid the evil without looking at these issues and these affairs and these principles. But you look at the situations as we mentioned where is the good, where is the harm? How much is that goodness? How much is that harm? Which is greater? Which is smaller? You look at all of these affairs to be able to judge what is the correct uh, uh, what is the correct course of action to do. If the good and the evil are equal the goodness and the equal of a si- and the badness of a situation are equal then the sheikh said you can't just say in the good is going to be the solution there or you can't just say preventing the evil is going to be the solution there. Sometimes, enjoying the good within that situation might be the solution. Sometimes, preventing the evil might be the solution. There, where the good and the evil are equal, again, you must look into the situation and see which is more befitting and suitable for that situation. So these are some of the things that the sheikh mentions with regards to that issue of preventing the harms is given priority over bringing the goods. That a person must look into that situation uh, and it 's not simply a case of bringing the benefit all the time. sometimes bringing that benefit may cause greater harm, so in that case it is not to be done. The fifth principle the sheikh mentions is <laughs> that the foundational and the secondary principles or rulings cannot be fulfilled and completed except with two affairs وجود الشرط وانتفاء the presence of the condition and the absence of any preventative factors for anything to be able to be done, the rulings to be implemented the rulings to be implemented on an issue then the conditions must be present and the preventative factors must be absent. That will be explained here now. وَهَذَا أَصْلٌ عَظِيمٌ فَجَمِيعِ أَحْكَامِ شَرْعِ سَوَانْ كَانَتْ وَصُولًا أَمْ فَرُوعًا لَا بُدَّ مِنْ وُجُودِ شُرُوتِهَا وَانْتِفَاءِ مَوَانِعِهَا فَلَا وُجِدَ الشَّرْطُ كَانَ هُنَاكَ مَانِعْ لَمْ من من أو أو so for example, there are many texts, آيات and أحاديث which say that if a person does this sin then he's going to get this punishment. Or a person who does that sin he's going to get hellfire. Many texts, آيات, أحاديث like that. So somebody who does one of those sins, he is in line for punishment. For example, somebody steals, somebody drinks alcohol. They are in line for punishment from Allah for that. They are in line for punishment. But are they definitely going to get that punishment? Can we say the ruling has been established? Because two conditions are needed. The condition has to be there For that ruling to be established, which is to drink alcohol, for example, he's done it. But also the preventative factors have to be there. Meaning, what if that person who drank alcohol, afterwards, he regretted it and he made tawbah. Is he still going to get punished? He's repented. So now there is a preventative factor from him being punished, even though he committed the sin. There's a preventative factor, something that stops the punishment, which is tawbah, istighfar. Istighfar. He seeks forgiveness from Allah, he seeks repentance from Allah. So when he does that, now there is something which is preventing that punishment to occur, which is his forgiveness and his repentance. Similarly, another example, the prayer. If somebody wants to establish the prayer, then the conditions have to be present, and the preventative factors have to be missing. So the conditions that have to be present, for example, obvious wudu. Somebody wants to pray, he can't pray without wudu. He must have the wudu to be able to pray then. That is a condition for that act of worship. So there, this is what the Sheikh is explaining, that for you to put the ruling upon someone, to make rulings upon people, isn't that easy. It's not that simple for you to just say, such and such is a kafir. He might have done something which is kafir. But are the conditions all there for you to declare him to be a kafir? Are all of the preventative factors missing? They are not there for you to be able to call him a kafir. Maybe one of the preventative factors is there. It stops you from calling him a kafir. Maybe one of the conditions to call him a kafir isn't there. So you can't. That's why you have to look at the conditions and the preventative factors. Make sure that they are all in place before you can give the ruling on something. That's why the Shaykh says, al-takfir, التكفير والتبديع tafsiq Declaring someone to be a kafir declaring someone to be an innovator, declaring someone to be an open sinner, a fasiq, then it requires for the conditions to be present and for the preventative factors to be absent. That's the way to be able to make that ruling. wa al ahlam wa al wa And that is something that all types of chaos has happened within basically where people begin to give out rulings for free. This ruler he's a kafir, that ruler he's a kafir. But they don't look at these principles of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The conditions have to be present. The preventative factors have to be missing. If there's a preventative factor there, you can't make that ruling upon that person. If one of the conditions is missing, you can't make that ruling upon that person. So be aware. These types of rulings, he's a kafir and he's a, he's an innovator and he's this and he's that. It's not just something you roll off the tongue. This is something that's done carefully by Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, until they declare someone to be a disbeliever, or they declare someone to be an innovator. That's why you see the scholars. The scholars, if they declare someone to be an innovator, it will be based upon evidences. Evidences and proofs, explaining it in detail, the principles they've gone against, all of the conditions, the preventative factors, everything is in place as it should be the lack of preventative factors, the conditions are present, and then they will say this man is a mubtadi'ah. That is how it's done. Not as some of the people on the streets now, such and such is a kafir, he's a kafir, this ruler is a kafir, that ruler is a kafir, this one is an innovator, that one is an innovator. But rather with evidences. With evidences. Sunnah wal Jamaah they do not declare people to be kuffar just like that. There are different levels. So somebody who is an innovator, there can be different levels of them. Some of them, some of these innovators, we can be certain that they are kuffar. Sometimes you can be certain. Some people they might say something which is absolute disbelief. Kufr. They have an aqidah, they have a statement of absolute kufr. The conditions are all present. The preventative factors are all missing. Everything is right in its place, and then that person can be declared a kafir. Some people though. They may say something which is a speech of kufr. They may do something which is an action of kufr. But it doesn't mean that you can declare them to be kufar. It doesn't mean you can say this man now is a kafir, that's it. Because there may be some conditions that are missing. There may be some preventative factors that are present. So you have to look carefully at these affairs. Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, they don't just run to saying this one's a kafir and this one's this and this one's that. That is what the people of innovation and the people of desires, they claim we do. They claim the Salafis, they always speak about people and they say this and they say that. Rather, this is the principle of Salafiyyah. That you look into the affairs carefully. The scholars, they look into the affairs carefully. The conditions have to be present. The preventative factors have to be missing. All of it is looked into detail before rulings are given of that nature. It's not something you just randomly do. This one's a kafir and this one's a mubtadiah. To the extent, with kufr especially. With regards to kufr, it's not that simple. Kufr, disbelief are different types. You have kufr i'tiqadi, the kufr of the heart, and kufr amali, the kufr of the actions. Kufr, which is the disbelief of the actions, doesn't necessarily mean somebody is a kafir. It doesn't necessarily mean that if somebody does something, which is an act of kufr, it doesn't necessitate he's a kafir. Whereas kufr of the heart, somebody believes in some type of kufr, then yes, that is different. So just because somebody, for example, has interest in his banks in his country, that doesn't necessitate this man is a kafir now. As some of the people on the streets, they'll tell you. They say to you, look at such and such a Muslim country. The ruler in his Muslim country has interest in his banks. The banks in that country, they have interest in them. Interest is haram. The ruler is therefore accountable for that he is ruling, but other than what Allah has revealed, kufr, is a kafir. That's what they say. And that is nonsense. To make the ruling that simply, as if you can just declare anyone to be a kafir, is nonsense. So be aware of these takfiris. Be aware of these types of individuals who have these takfiri kind of beliefs. The Al-Muhajirun, the Hizb al Tahrir, these types of people. They have all of these types of mentalities where they don't understand these principles. And that's why they start declaring this one to be a kafir, this one to be this, this one to be that, as if it's something randomly you can just say off the top of your tongue. Then on top of that, the Sheikh says, with all of this, if you're going to make someone a kafir or declare him to be a kafir and declare him to be an innovator, all of that is based upon Dalalatul Kitabi wa Sunnah على أن القول أو الفعل من عليه موجب للتكفير. That whatever this person who you are going to declare as a kafir He must have done something from the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah Which dictates it is an act of kufr. Not something that a person just makes up Must be in the Qur'an and the Sunnah dictating that this is an act of kufr. Also انتباق هذا الحكم على القائل المعين that the ruling can then be established upon this specific individual. The ruling can actually be established upon that individual. Maybe he has done some speech or made some actions that are in contradiction to the Quran and the Sunnah. Maybe that evidence is there. But then you have to look at that individual himself. Does the ruling or can the ruling be applied to him? Are the conditions there? Are the preventative factors missing? And then you have to look at that individual and decide if the ruling can be applied to him or not. It's not just randomly you can say anybody's a kafir. وهاذان الاصلاني أيضا ينطبغان على شَخْصٍ عند الحكم عليه بالابتداع أو الفسق. وهو دلالة الكتاب يصلنا على أن القول والفعل صادر عن al عليه بدعا وكون القائل المعين أو تمت شروط and similarly, the sheikh says, if you're going to make somebody or declare someone an innovator, you're going to declare someone as an innovator or a fasiq, uh, an open sinner, then those types of individuals, the disobedient ones of that nature, again, these conditions must be looked at. They must be looked at. Has that person done something which is in contradiction to the Quran and the Sunnah and the evidences of the Quran and the Sunnah? If he has, can these rulings be applied to him. Are the conditions present? Are the preventative factors missing? You have to look at those in detail and the scholars are the ones who look at those affairs in detail before giving their rulings on people. So you will see that Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the great scholars of our times, the likes of Shaykh Rabi'ah bin Hadi al-Madkhali hafidhah Allah Ta'ala, as many of the scholars have praised him in his strength with regards to these issues and these affairs. So when the sheikh or others from uh, the scholars, they make these rulings, then they are done upon insight. They are done upon justice. They are done upon evidences. Not like the Hizb tahrir person or the Muhajirun person walking on the street, making these rulings randomly left, right and center. This one did this and that one did that. So he's a kafir and he's a kafir. But this is done properly with Ahl sunnah wal-Jama'ah, with detail, with careful study, not something randomly done. So that is something that a person should remember because this is a fitna in our times. It's a fitna that the people have spread. This one is a kafir and that country is a kafir and this ruler is this and that ruler is that. And we must attack the rulers and we must go out against the rulers. This is something that is corruption. They have not understood the principles of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. They have not understood what the Prophet taught us how to behave. They have not understood that and that's why you see all of the corruption. That's why you see the killing and the looting and the robbing and everything that occurs, the destruction that occurs in those countries in the name of, we're removing the ruler who is an oppressor. The oppression that occurs as a consequence is far greater. So it's upon an individual to look at these principles carefully and to understand them carefully so that this religion can be understood in the proper manner. Uh, We'll leave it at that because the next chapter is a separate section. We'll start that section properly next time, which is the section concerning the position of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah towards the people of innovation. There are people, no doubt, who have gone away from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and they've invented new things which are not evidenced in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And they've started to do new practices that were not taught to us by the Prophet sallam So what is the position that we should have towards those types of people? How should we behave towards them? How should we give them da'wah? How should we protect ourselves from their innovations? Those types of dealings that we have with the people in the community, etc. That is the topic that we'll discuss next. The position of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jamaah towards the innovators. How do we deal with that issue? So inshaAllah Ta'ala will begin with that next week. Uh, InshaAllah